We're in the book of 1 John. We're in chapter 3. And our focus as we've been going through the book of 1 John on Friday nights is that God wants us to get real. He wants us to be authentic people. He does, he, this book is all about letting us know what an authentic Christian looks like and what false teachers had, had been coming in to the church uh, that 1 John is addressing and the false teachings that they've been saying. They've been coming in saying, you know, you can walk in darkness and still be a Christian. You can not obey Jesus' commands and you can still be a Christian. You cannot love your brother and still be a Christian. But John is writing this book to say, no, there are certain things that you have to do or you have to look like in order to really call yourself a Christian. Uh, what, a, what a true Christian will actually look like. Now, we're not saying anything about uh, a Christian is saved by works at all, nothing like that. But we are saying that a Christian will display certain characteristics so that you can know that they are a Christian, all right? And so tonight, uh, we are going to be going through 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And before we go through that, let me just open us up in prayer before we, go, before we get into it. All right. We as humans, we are competitive. Isn't there something in us that makes us want to compete against someone or make us wants, makes us want to compare ourselves to someone else? We say, man, you know, I'm not that bad compared to this person, right? And so, but when we actually compare ourselves to Jesus, we say, eh, well, I actually am kind of bad, right? But by nature, we are competitive. Just look at all the money that goes into com competitive sports around the world. Uh, we'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go watch these, you know, big sports teams, these big grown men go and chase a, a dead pig, you know, around a football field or, you know, a piece of dead cow. We've got to put it through the hoop. And millions and billions of dollars are generated through these sports because of competition. Um, we love to compete. And competition is big business. In baseball, the most, the most profitable franchise in baseball is the New York Yankees. All right? They are worth just over $1 billion, right? Okay? Uh, the Dallas Cowboys are worth about $1.5 billion. Uh, the Redskins are just below $1.4 billion. And in the NBA, the Lakers are worth about $428 million. They're NBA is not as profitable as the other sports. But that's still a lot of money, right? I could use $428 million, couldn't you? Okay. And they get this valuable because people are putting money into these teams because people love to watch competition. They love team play, all right? Not only in sports, but we look at politics. Uh, in the U.S., they're, they're running up to their you know, presidential election. And the Democrats are raising money, and the Republicans are raising money. Hillary Clinton just raised $27 million in the last three months, just for her campaign. Barack Obama raised $21 million on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, Mitt Romney, he's the Mormon. Uh, sorry. <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything, but I thought I'd just say it. Uh, he's raised $62 million so far for his campaign. And Rudy Giuliani has raised $47 million for this campaign, all just from donations from people supporting them. Individuals can only, a maximum don donation an individual can make to a political campaign in the U.S. is $1,000. So they've raised 
Hillary has raised 27 million in the last three months. That's a lot of people making donations to add up to 27 million. Look at our own elections. That was competitive, wasn't it? We're still recovering from it, right? We're still trying to find harmony among these two parties. But when it comes down to it, when there's competition, when there are two sides to choose from, people are going to pick a side. And when they pick that side and when they pick that team who they're going to pull for, they're going to support that team. And they're going to let everyone know that they support that team. And they're going to do things to help that team out. And so tonight, we want to let you know from the passage that we're going to be teaching about, there are two sides that you can be on. And tonight, we want to ask you to evaluate, one, which side you are on, which side do people think you're on, and how much do you support the side that you are really on, okay? So we are going to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10, and I will read it for you. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, he being Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Right, Thaddeus? For the devil, the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. All right, the last Friday night we had, we stopped at verse 3, which says, everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And he's, going, he's talking about how we purify ourselves and why we purify ourselves. We purify ourselves because Jesus is coming back, and we don't want to be ashamed when Jesus comes back. And so he goes into this little kind of rabbit trail on, on purifying ourselves and, and, how, and what happens if we don't purify ourselves. And so in verse 4, he says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, all right? So apparently some people were thinking, okay, I can break the law, but that's not really sin. But John wipes that out. He, you know, some people think as long as I, some people take it the opposite way. As long as I'm not breaking the law, I'm not doing anything wrong. And John knocks out both of those. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So whatever way you go, you are sinning, if you break the law or if you sin against God's law. And when we sin, what does he say? He says, we practice lawlessness. What do you think of when you think of lawlessness? If someone is lawless, a mass murderer, that's true. When we think of lawlessness, we think of someone who doesn't think the law applies to them. We call them sociopaths, right? These are people who think they can make up their own law and live by their own set of laws, do whatever they want, and 
that's okay for them. But John says, no, when we sin, we're practicing lawlessness. And, and, and if there are no laws, what does that lead to? Chaos. Excellent. All right? Chaos, anarchy, everyone doing what is right in their own mind, just like in the book of Judges, and everyone's sinning, and then God judges them. But for us, we look at lawlessness, and, and you know, we see the effects of when people choose to live like there is no law. We see the effects of what we're having in our country today, where crime is the biggest issue that we have. We don't, we're scared to walk outside of our house because murder is so high, and these people think the law doesn't apply to me. I'm going to do what I want to make myself better or whatever makes me feel good. And so he's saying when we sin, we are promoting chaos, maybe not in the country, but we're promoting chaos in our lives. Think of a sin. Somebody throw a sin out. Stealing. Okay. How does stealing promote chaos? Right. People take, from, take, take, take what we need. I take something from Anissa. Anissa doesn't like it. So she takes something from me or she cracks me in the skull. You know. It just leads to greater and greater chaos. Until God steps in. Now we may not feel like it leads to chaos. We feel like, oh, you know, it, this feels good. Like Stephen was in the skit. He's like, how can people say this is bad? This feels so good. And we keep doing it, and we keep doing it, and keep doing it. But in the end, God says what? We, we reap what we sow. And God says he won't be mocked. You keep doing it, and keep doing it, and keep doing it. Eventually, you're going to reap what you have sown in sin chaos in our lives. Um, I have a friend, one of the girls I went to Word of Life with. I've told this story about her before. Um, she sang with me in the ensemble. She uh, just today, I saw on her MySpace page, she wrote a little blog saying um, how messed up her life is. She's saying she she threw away her friends. She threw away her family. She threw away everything that had gotten her a good life to go with a guy. Her, her parents didn't come to her wedding. She had no friends. And so she goes with this guy, and this guy treats her really bad. And eventually they get married. They get divorced. She's 24, and she's divorced. She, after she got divorced, she started dating another guy. This guy took her money, uh, gave her bad credit, like signed up for things in her name, and didn't pay off the debts. And so now she is responsible for what he did. And she is just, she's come to the conclusion that her life is terrible, and there's no way that she will ever get back on track. So she's decided she's going to live just for herself. She went to Word of Life. She got everything from the Word of God. But she still chose to make decisions and that she was aware of. She knew she was turning her back on the things that God had put in her life, her godly family, her godly friends, all for a guy. And now she knows that it's led her life into chaos. There's another girl, but I won't tell the story about her. 
So sin is lawlessness. Sin leads to chaos. In verse 5, he says, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So he lays out the first reason why we should not sin. Jesus came to take away sin. This is one of the reasons why he came. And in him there is no sin. Jesus had nothing to do with sin. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect, led a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us when he died on the cross. And so, because, and, it's, and it was our sin that put him on the cross. And so when it comes to us, we should look at that example and say, no. Jesus had nothing to do with sin. And so, I am not going to have anything to do with sin. I'm going to work toward not having anything to do with sin. You know, and Jesus followed through. I think, <laughs> I think of Al Gore, okay? And what's his, what's his uh, agenda now? Global warming, environmentalism, you know, turning everybody green, right? He just won a Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know what global warming has to do with peace, but he got it, okay? Yet... He charters private jets, right? He takes the big, huge planes to get across to Europe to collect his Nobel Peace Prize. He drives huge vehicles that burn gas. And his monthly electricity bill for his house is $20,000. Yet he's telling everyone else, you need to conserve energy, right? And so we... Th we look at someone like that, and we look at his cause, and we say, this isn't right. This doesn't match up. Yeah, you know, maybe if you lived up to what you were saying, it'd be easy for us to go along with it. But sorry, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's that important to you. But when we look at Jesus, we say, oh, wow, he was perfect. He was tempted like we are, yet he didn't sin. He didn't give in. And so when we look at him through the eyes of faith, we say, I want to be like that. I want to get rid of the junk. I want to get rid of the stuff that causes chaos in my life. And, and this point that where he says, we know that he appeared to take away sin. This is why he came. He came to take away sin. This is clear in the scripture, okay? Yet, we have people who say, no, this is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to set an example. That's all he did. He came and showed us how to love people. That's all he came for. He didn't come for sin or anything like that. He just came to show us how to love people. That's not what this verse says, right? Then we have the Muslims who say, yes, Jesus was a prophet. He was a great teacher, but he did not come to take away sin. Muslims say Jesus did not even die on the cross. That God put Judas on the cross and made it look like Jesus. And I laugh every time I think of that. I think that's funny. But anyway. We have... 
we also have some people who take that too far, that Jesus came to take away sin. We have some people, someone who we have used in this youth group as a teacher, his name is Rob Bell, he's a pastor of a church in Michigan. We have used him, you know, to help us teach, but now I found out that he actually believes that when Jesus came and died, he took away everybody's sin. You know, kind of universal atonement. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we must put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Rob Bell also says the hell that he believes in is the hell that we live in. So when the Bible speaks of hell, it speaks of the hell that we live in when we don't live like Jesus told us to live. We don't believe that either. We believe in a literal hell, fire, burning, torment, eternity. Don't go there, okay? So you guys want to take care of that. Um, this whole idea of Jesus coming and just being a good moral teacher or a great man or a great example for us to follow. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about this. C.S. Lewis was, he was an atheist who got saved and then became a Christian apologist, all right? And he did a lot of writings in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and this is something that he said about Jesus. He said, I'm trying here, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for, for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now the atheists have their counterarguments to this. They say, you know, those aren't the only three options. And, you know, maybe Jesus didn't exist. Or maybe they wrote his words down wrong. Or, you know, just throwing out other options so that they don't have to deal with the issue of Christ as Lord. But we believe the Word of God. We believe the Bible. We believe it's accurate. We believe it's historically accurate. And so we believe what Jesus wrote. And so we don't think that we can just say Jesus was a good teacher. Because Jesus made the claim to be God. And Jesus made the claim that he had come to take away the sins of the world. And so we are left with a choice to pick which side we are going to be on. Verse 6. says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. This can be a, com a confusing verse because it sounds like it says, anytime we sin, we're not a Christian or we're not saved. But if we go back to verse 4, it, it, this is why translation is important because the New American Standard, uh, it tries to be as literal and accurate with the Greek to English translation as possible. And so we see in verse 4, it says, everyone who practices sin. Some of your translations, maybe King James or NIV, might say, everyone who sins. 
But verse 4, and in the future verses, it says everyone who practices sin in the New American Standard. Because in the Greek, the verb sin, the way they could write it in the Greek was that it meant a continuous, ongoing pattern. And so when it says sins, it means, like the New American Standard translates it, everyone who practices sin, everyone who continues in it, everyone who abides in sin, shows himself to be lawless, and shows himself to be children of the devil, as it, as it will say later. But we see, it says, no one who abides in him sins, or practices sin. No one who sins has seen him or known, or known him. No one who abides in him. And on Friday nights, we talked about this word abide in chapter 2. And we said how it means to continue in something, to remain in it, to cultivate it, to work, to remain, to, to study our Bibles, to pray, to go to church, to be around Christian friends. And it says no one who abides in him sins. No one who is living deeply in Christ continues to sin habitually over and over and over and over again. Why? Because of who he is. And because when we are living deeply in Christ, when we understand who he is, and when we continue in those things, when we understand that he had nothing to do with sin, and that when he came, he took away our sin so that we could not live in it any longer. When we understand that, when we understand that we are a new creature, that we have been born again, that we get to start over. That sin is, not some, sin is not something that we want to characterize ourselves with anymore. And so, we may sin. But when we do, we deal with it. We confess it. We repent. We don't continue in it. We don't uh, parade it around. and say, woo, look at me. I'm a homosexual, right? No one who is living in Christ and understanding him and having a relationship with him will continue to sin. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And this is why recently I've been wrestling with this term, and I still haven't made up my mind on it, is the term backsliding. You know, we have people who, who grow up in church, and then when they go to college, they backslide, right? Um, the passage seems to say that you can't do that. You can sin, and if you don't deal with it, God is going to either pull you back to himself, or if you just keep running in that direction, maybe we need to question if you ever were truly saved. Maybe we need to question if you truly understood the seriousness of sin and what Jesus Christ actually did on the cross in dying and taking the torture and the brutality for you. Those are my thoughts on it. Okay? <laughs> I haven't totally settled that in my mind, but that's where I'm Verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Okay? 
Make sure no one deceives you. In chapter 2, he was talking about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist had come in and were what? Lying, saying Jesus had not come in the flesh. And so John is saying, don't let them trick you in this area, okay? Don't let them trick you into thinking that sin is no big deal. Don't let them trick you into thinking that you can continue in sin and still say, I love Jesus, that I'm a Christian. Don't let anyone deceive you with that because back then, Christianity was only maybe 30, 40 years old, right? And Satan hadn't figured out the best ways to get us yet. And so, you know, he'd just, he'd, have, he'd whisper in his little antichrist ear and they would just walk in, into a church and say, you can sin. That's fine. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And people would go, well, maybe. I don't know. Huh. That sounds fun. But it's been, that's why John had to write this, this letter. He's, counter, he's countering the Antichrist that were coming in with all this false teaching. But now Satan's had, what, 2,000 years? You think he's figured it out yet? You think he's refined his tactics? He has. Um, if you want a good idea on, on tactics that Satan uses, especially young people, I want you to just think about this book, The Screw Tape Letters. All right? This is, how many of you have read this? Chris and Stephen. Good. Rachel has started it. And in the back. It's, it's all about the senior devil uh, who is writing his nephew devil on, and instructing him on tactics for how to reach this Christian, this, this young guy who has just become a Christian, and how this demon can derail this Christian in his life. Um, and, he, and, and he uses these really subtle tactics. You know, he makes him, he says, you can use spiritual pride to get to this young man. You know, you can make him think that because he goes to church, that he doesn't do anything really bad, that he's pretty good. And that way he'll develop the spiritual pride and he think he won't need God anymore or he'll live like God doesn't, isn't really that important or that doesn't have a real direct relationship with us. And so you can use that. Or you can develop a critical spirit in him. Make him think that he has to jump from church to church because certain churches don't have everything that he needs. You know, make him really critical so that when he goes into a church, he starts pointing out the things that he doesn't like instead of the things that are good. Make him think that falling in love is the greatest ideal that he could attain to. Make him think that his time is his. Make him get angry when someone else wants his time. Convince him that the time that he has been given is really his, so that he can get angry and get bitter. They're all different kinds of things that Satan uses. And so he's warning them, do not be deceived. Satan, you know, and it's not just Satan and these demons. We got, we've got friends. We've got celebrities. You know, we've got uh, celebrities wearing the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. 
right? Pamela Anderson wears this. Uh, Brad Pitt has worn this. Ashton Kutcher wears this shirt. Jesus is my homeboy, right? But what those shirts do is they, you know, especially when those people wear them, it makes it seem like, oh, you know, Jesus is kind of cool. Jesus is casual. Jesus, you know, he's my buddy. He's my friend. He doesn't really care how I live, you know. He understands. No big deal. No big deal if I cheat on my wife, like Brad Pitt. No big deal. Jesus is still my homeboy. But John is saying, don't be deceived. Don't bite into that foolishness. Think of your friends. A lot of you have MySpace accounts, and you've got, you know, 267 friends on your MySpace or your Facebook or whatever it is. Um, you know, statistics say that we, uh, we only really have two friends in real life. But on the internet, we get 267 friends, and they're called friends. And so these people can, can talk to us and, and, you know, say things to us. And just this week, um, Facebook has this, it works like you can see what other people are putting on all your friends' pages. It tells you when other people put stuff on, on your friends' pages, like not even your page, just your friends' pages. And I saw two things this week that were the most disgusting pictures that I've ever seen in my life. They were very sexually explicit. And no, no one in here, no, none of our young people here, but they were on young people who, in our youth group, that I've seen. Now, I'm sure that they didn't ask for those things to be put on their, on their pages from their so-called friends. But you've got these people who say that they're your friend, and they throw all this junk at you. And you didn't necessarily ask for it. Um, and this just happens when, you, when you're with your friends at school. You know, they want to tell you who they hooked up with, how much they drank over the weekend. Right? Don't be deceived by them. Just because it looks cool, just because it sounds fun, and it might be fun, for a while, but remember we talked about sowing and reaping? We reap what we sow. We reap chaos, and we let sin reign in our life. And you know, the more you listen to it, the more curious you get about it. The more you watch it on TV, the more curious you get about it, and the more you want to do it. Think about when you were 9 or 10 years old, and if someone asked you, you know, you want to drink, you want to smoke, instantly you're like, no, that's gross. Right? You want to make out with somebody? Ew! But now, you've heard your friends talking about it for so long. You've seen so much more of it on TV. You think, well, everybody's doing it. I might as well try it. Can't hurt that much. And we get tricked into thinking that sin is okay. John says, don't be deceived by it. Because the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as 
he is righteous. So we see Jesus is righteous. We say we want to be like that. We want to do the things that Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus did, read the Gospels. If you want to know how you can be righteous, read the Gospels, see what Jesus did, and do what he did. That's not hard, eh? But you've got to read. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So here he is. He's laying it out. He's saying, all right, time to pick your side. Time to pick what team you're going to be on. Are you on the side of Satan, who has sinned from the beginning? He is characterized by sin. Or are you going to be on Jesus' side? The side that hates sin. The side that does whatever it can to destroy sin. The side that wants to do righteous acts, not sinful acts. The side that wants to read its Bible. That wants to have a deeper relationship with God. Not just come to church. Not just go through the routine but to have a relationship with God? Or do you want to be on the side that's all about selfishness, chaos, smoking, drinking? Which side are you going to be on? Because it's easy to tell what side you're on. It's not hard. In the future, he says it's obvious. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. What team are you on? What are you practicing? Are you practicing righteousness or are you practicing sin? Now, living stones, you, they hear this every practice, right? How's it going, fellas? Practice makes permanent, okay? And proper preparation prevents performance, okay? So if you don't practice, when it comes time to perform, you're going to do poorly, right? If you're not practicing righteousness in your own personal life, then when you get around your friends, it's not going to happen going to just go along and do whatever they say and joke with whatever they joke with, you know, listen to the same music that they listen to, play the same video games they play. So we must practice. We must practice our righteousness if we want to show people what team we're on. What team do you want to be on? You're here, so I'm assuming you want to be on God's team. So practice is not a one-time deal either, right? Say, well, I gave some food to a homeless person, so I'm righteous now. That, that'll carry me over for the rest of my life. Because of one thing. No, we understand that it's more than one, a one-time deal. We've got to continually do it. We've got to continually cultivate in our hearts to put away our pride, put away our selfishness, 
Put away our fear of what other people might think and say, no, I'm going to do righteousness. It's also, it also works the other way. It's not a one-time deal. It works in the sin area as well. You know, you might think, oh, I sinned. Does that mean I'm on Satan's side? No. It's the practicing. I sinned and I confessed and I repented and I asked God to forgive me. No, you're not on Satan's side. When it comes to practicing, parents, talk to you for a minute. What do your children see you practicing? Do they see you practicing righteousness? Do they see you enjoying your relationship with God? Or do they see righteousness as being forced to come to church? Or being forced to measure up to a list of requirements that you have set out that if they don't measure up, then they're not good enough. Do they see you enjoying your life? Or do they see you do they see you at church one way and then when you go home it's a totally different story? Because they want to see it in you. They want to see it in me. So when we practice, we know what team we're on. Whatever we practice, that's what team we're on. Some of you play softball. And when you practice, you practice and practice and practice, right? And then when it comes time for the game, do you jump in the other team's dugout? I didn't hear that. For a fight, okay. <laughs> that's sin teaching. I've been coaching Kingsway this weekend for the... Nationwide tournament that's been going on for softball. And sometimes it looked like <laughs> they were playing for the other team. When they would throw the ball and when they would run the bases, it looked like they were trying to help the other team win. And that's frustrating as a coach. Now we came third, so it wasn't that bad. But what, whatever you practice, that's the team you play for, okay? So don't practice one thing and then try to jump on the other team. If you're practicing sin, don't come to, don't come to church and, and try, to be, try to pretend to be righteous. Be honest, all right? Your youth leaders, me, Chara, Anthon, Michelo, you know, Brother Charlie, we are not going to beat you down. If you come to us and you say, I am struggling with this. I am struggling with lust. Because you're being honest about it. But when you come and when you fake it, or you continue to practice your sin, then we get frustrated. Because we want you to play on the right team. We want you to be on Jesus' team. Now, 
What team are you on? You've decided that. But I want to encourage you, and I want to let you know, teenagers especially, young people, that you need practice. And so we don't expect you to be perfectly righteous, to get your, to have your Christian life all together, you know, to know every single Bible verse or to know how to handle every single situation or to never give in to temptation. We're not expecting that because we understand the stage that you're at. We don't expect you to be as mature as someone in there, you know, who's been a Christian for 40, 50 years. We don't put that pressure on you. We want you to grow at your own pace. But we do want you to understand that you need to practice righteousness and not sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. God is anti-sin. Everything about him is anti-sin. And he cannot continue in sin because the seed of God is in him. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, in verse 8, in verse 7 and 8, he said the one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Now, he says it in the affirmative. He says it in the positive way. Now he's saying it in a negative way. Whoever does not practice righteousness is of the devil. Is not of God. And the one who does not love his brother. Because apparently these people had problems loving each other. If there's someone in in this room or at school that you are having major issues with, you need to deal with that. And I know teenagers love to avoid conflict, avoid controversy, unless they're Steven and they like to fight, you know. That's how guys deal with it. It's like, all right, let me fight. Punch in the mouth, all right, issue settled. We're good. But deal with, the, deal with that issue with that person that you're struggling with, Okay. Pick which team you're on. And support that team. We'll cheer for our baseball teams. We'll cheer for our football teams. We'll cheer for our softball teams. And we'll support them and do whatever we can to help them. We are on the winning side. Sometimes we get embarrassed and we're like, man, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. We forget that it's a bad analogy, but we'll use it anyway. We forget that we've got Michael Jordan on our team. He's going to hit the winning shot every time. We've got A-Rod to come up in the bottom of the ninth and hit the grand slam. Every time. We are never going to lose. Because we have Jesus Christ on our team. Because he's our God. He's done everything that is required to take away sin and to allow us to live for righteousness.